Section 5 of The Bible Under Trial. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Bible Under Trial by James Orr. Presuppositions in Old Testament Criticism. Parts 1 through 3. I have indicated that the severest trial to which the Bible has been subjected in recent years has come from the side of Old Testament criticism. To this phase of the trial, therefore, I shall now, in a few papers, address myself. So wide is the field, and so complex the subject, that it will be understood that I must content myself with touching only the larger issues, but I shall try to glance at most of these. Part 1. The higher criticism, it is well known, professes to dissect the Bible into its elements, to determine approximately the dates and circumstances of the composition of its component parts. Then, from the materials thus analyzed and readjusted, to construct a living picture of the history of the people of Israel and of the development of their religion, laws, and institutions. It has already been made clear that not one word will be said in these papers against legitimate criticism, provided it be done reverently by all means, let the Bible be subjected to the most careful scrutiny anyone can apply to it on its literary and historical sides. And if any light breaks out from the process, as, under God's guidance, there is every reason to hope it will, let it be faithfully followed, even if old ideas and time-honored conclusions have, to some extent, to be modified or abandoned. This is not, indeed, the highest way of studying the Bible. Taken by itself, it is poor fare, this critical business, for any human soul to nourish itself upon. Still, criticism has its rightful and necessary place, and I have not been stinted elsewhere in my acknowledgment of the gains we owe to it. I gladly own that, as the result of criticism, many things in the Bible are far better understood than they were before, and that the study of the Old Testament, especially in its historical and prophetical parts, has undergone a remarkable freshening. Only it is fair to note that many other causes in the progress of knowledge and in the spirit of the time have contributed to this result, and criticism must not be allowed to carry off the whole credit of it. It is not, therefore, every criticism, but this criticism, which has for many years almost exclusively usurped the name which is impugned as injurious to faith. It is often said when attention is called to the minute dissection of the books of the Bible and to theories of age and authorship, 
What, after all, does it matter? Is faith bound up with questions of doubtful disputation like these? Frequently, the remonstrance is added that in any case it is wrong to appeal to the harmful consequences of a theory in disproof of its truth, when the sole question should be, is it true? It is necessary, however, very carefully to discriminate. It is freely granted that there are many inquiries in criticism which faith can afford to look on with equanimity. Footnote. It is at the same time only superficially plausible to say that, in almost any department, criticism does not matter. It is the case, for example, that the more nearly we come to contemporary sources in history, the better is our foundation. Who will deny that this fact lends importance to such questions as to whether Moses was concerned in the composition of the Pentateuch, or whether Luke wrote the Third Gospel and the Acts, or whether Paul was the author of the epistles that bear his name? And footnote. There are books in the Bible, for example, Kings and Chronicles, compilations from earlier materials, and admittedly of late date, the authorship of which is unknown. Yet their authority is not destroyed, and it is a legitimate question how far this process of compilation may extend or take the question of the Pentateuch. I myself take a high view of the connection of Moses with the Pentateuch. I believe this to be the view borne out by internal evidence, by the later testimony of the Old Testament, and by unbroken tradition since. Yet there are parts of the Pentateuch which we know Moses did not write. For example, the account of his own death, Deuteronomy 34, and if it should prove, as I think probable, that different hands cooperated in the composition of this large work, that it embodied older or later records, and that it underwent repeated revision and re-editing, our faith in its essentially mosaic character and truthfulness would not be sensibly affected. It is a very different matter, as pointed out at the commencement, when the late dates assigned to documents are employed as leverage to destroy the credibility of the history and to upset at almost every point the Bible's witness to itself. How, a reasonable mind will inevitably ask, can anyone regard as the Word of God a book which confessedly is largely composed of fictions and incredibilities, which degrades and dishonors God by its representations, which is full of contradictions, in which its most solemn, thus saith the Lord's, are denied? which does not scruple on occasion to employ the methods of fraud. Criticism of this kind does emphatically matter. 
it is the armory in which popular infidelity finds today its most effective weapons against the bible this is not a matter which appeals only to academic interests the argument from consequences needs indeed to be handled with caution but in no sphere of life does any sane man close his eyes to the nature of the consequences of the theory he is opposing or defending is it a fiscal controversy the stake is held to be the prosperity or ruin of the empire is it a question of personal conduct the beneficial or harmful consequences of a particular line of action are never forgotten to be urged grave or hurtful consequences are at least always regarded as a reason for the narrowest scrutiny of the principles or theories that lead up to them they are often more by their fruits ye shall know them is given as a test bearing directly upon truth footnote hence the ineptness of such criticism on this point as the following the real question is are the generally accepted results of biblical criticism substantially correct if they are we must accept them no matter what consequences they involve let's have the light even if we perish in it is it probable that the true light will issue in destruction End footnote. it is carefully to be observed in entering on the inquiry about criticism that the book proposed to be subjected to this ordeal does not come to the trial without having something to say for itself on the points directly at issue the investigation does not take place in vacuo the slate is not clean at the commencement of the critic's proceedings the bible has a character an identity a witness of its own which must be taken account of in any examination of its claims it comes into court with very distinct claims it professes to be a history of revelation it gives itself out as a record of god's dealings with man in revelation from the beginning it unfolds the course of that revelation through its successive dispensations it has its own account to give of the origin of its laws and institutions its narrative is connected with great historic personages abraham moses samuel david the prophets culminating in jesus christ the goal of the whole the history accordingly has an organic progressive character is charged with deep ideas moves forward under the impulse of an indwelling divine purpose which cannot be eliminated from its parts without destroying the significance of the whole more even must be said of it than this 
the old testament abounds in claims to be or convey the word of god to its own time and people jesus accepted it as such for example matthew four verses four seven and ten five verses seventeen and eighteen fifteen verses three and six luke twenty four verses twenty six and twenty seven john five verses thirty nine forty five through forty seven he appeals to its narratives even the earliest in proof of the great principles of his religion matthew nineteen verses four through six twenty two verses thirty one and thirty two the new testament declares this to be its character and in the essentials of its message affirms it to be the word of god to christians still for example romans one verses one and two three verses one and two first corinthians ten verse eleven second timothy three verses fifteen and seventeen the old testament gives besides good reasons for these claims in the spiritual powers with which its revelation is shown to be charged the onus lies on the critic if he will of disproving this character of the bible many of course do not desire to disprove it it cannot be simply ignored or treated as if the claim was not there the critic cannot be allowed in oblivion of all this to start theory building on the origin and course of israel's history and religion as if nothing already was given yet as we are soon to see this is precisely what the modern criticism in its most eminent representatives does it will in truth become apparent as we proceed that nearly everything in this critical study of the old testament depends on the principles by which we are guided and the spirit in which the study is conducted criticism is like the fiery cloudy pillar which led the israelites through the red sea it has a double aspect light to the hosts in front darkness to their pursuers to one man imbued with the psalmist's love of god's law psalms one nineteen verse eighteen criticism discloses endless harmonies and agreements to another it discovers nothing but difficulties incredibilities contradictions moral monstrosities it follows that we cannot be too careful about our starting points and methods part two this brings me to a closer scrutiny of the methods of the newer criticism of whose procedure i complain criticism i know is for the present so settled on its lees in its confidence in its immovable results that little that any one can say will make any impression on it it points in the familiar phrase 
to its assured results, and there is held to be an end of it. There are, however, several questions which press for answer here. A first is, are the results settled? Next, if they are, how are they settled? And yet another is, should they be settled? And the middle question of these three, the question of the how, is as important as either of the others. It is the one I propose to look at to begin with. The story of how criticism has come to reach its present advanced position is too long to be here even entered on. Two periods in general may be distinguished. First, there was the period of the literary criticism, with its results in the analysis of the documents of the Pentateuch now commonly accepted, J.E.D.P., with their developments, the assigning of Deuteronomy to the age of Josiah, the attributing of the second part of Isaiah to the exile, of Daniel to the age of the Maccabees, etc. Next came the period of the so-called historical religious criticism, inaugurated with some precursors by Groff in 1866 and carried forward by Kuhnen, Wellhausen, and others, till it has become the reigning school. In its hands, history, laws, religion, all go into the melting pot with consequences that will afterwards become apparent. Its distinctive and most plausible feature is the theory of the three codes, namely the Book of the Covenant, the Deuteronomic, and the Priestly Codes, assumed to correspond with successive periods of the history. The Levitical Code, assigned by the Bible to Moses, is post-exilian. The Order of Levites takes its origin from the degraded priests of Ezekiel 44. If now the question is asked, by what method are these results obtained? The answer will confidently be given by careful literary and historical investigation and I have no disposition to deny that honest and careful investigation has played a large part in the history of criticism. Critical theories are often hypotheses to explain real phenomena, and it is only fair to give careful attention to any facts they bring to light and seek to account for. But is this all? If it were, it is safe to say we should not have the results now shown. But it is not. There is a deeper force at work whose action has profoundly controlled and directed the operations of Old Testament criticism from the first. The force I speak of is the rationalistic conviction that a supernatural explanation of facts cannot be admitted. From the beginning, 
Old Testament criticism has been committed to this idea, and it is under its influence, very largely, that the modern theory we are now discussing has been built up. This preconception, connected with what is called the modern view of the world, enters deeply into both Old Testament and New Testament criticism at the present hour. I take here a striking illustration from the New Testament, which applies with equal force to the Old. Germany and other countries have been flooded of late with books, some of a popular order, setting forth the lineaments of a non-supernatural Jesus and of a Christianity divorced from Pauline ideas. Against this so-called religious historical view of Jesus and Christianity, as represented by two writers, Bousset and Vrida, the Richlian professor, Julius Kaftan of Berlin, utters himself in a trenchant pamphlet, Jesus und Paulus, which, in its own way, is a sign of the times. His words are weighty. This new theorizing, he declares emphatically, has its roots in quite other soil than that of method. It is, he says, put briefly, the so-called modern view of the world, Moderna Weltanschauung, which stands behind it, page 4. He shows how this leads to a quite unhistorical representation of both Jesus and Paul, and concludes a searching investigation with the judgment, quote, I conclude, therefore, that this Jesus religion is an affair without roots, as it has points of support neither in the gospel of Jesus nor in primitive Christianity, so it will never approve itself, not today and not in the future, as a possible form of Christianity. End quote. Page 77. Footnote. I have been criticized for saying in my book on God's Image in Man that the Christian view of the world is not the modern view, and that we ought to have the courage to declare this. Kaftan utters himself in much stronger language than I have cared to use. I am no lover, he says, of the modern view of the world. Rather, I find it astonishing that so many thinking men should be led astray by this bugbear. Page 72. See page 151. End footnote. Exactly the same thing is true of the modern theorizing on the Old Testament. It has its roots not in method, but in an anti-supernaturalistic presupposition. Devetta, in his introduction, laid it down that the miraculous narratives of the Old Testament have their foundation partly in the deficiency and narrowness of human knowledge at that time, and partly in the distance of time between the event itself and the written account of it, 
and held that they were to be treated as historical myths. Volume 2, page 25. The criticism of Kuhnen and Wellhausen is ruled by this idea. Professor G. B. Foster of Chicago University declares, with the endorsement of that body, in his recent book on the finality of the Christian religion, that to the scientific understanding of the world and to the intellectual aptitude superinduced by science, a miracle cannot be admitted, page 130, and devotes a large section of his work to the proof of this thesis. I know, of course, very well that many who have adopted and work with these theories retain their faith in the supernatural. Their reason for doing so is the very just one that they perceive quite clearly that, with any amount of critical violence, you cannot get the supernatural out of the Bible. It is there and will reassert itself. Their problem, accordingly, is to work these two things together, and the result is a compromise which will not stand, since the things attempted to be combined are opposite in principle. Fruit grown upon a tree of such pronouncedly rationalistic root does not become good simply by being served up in a Christian basket. Footnote the reply sometimes made to an argument of this kind, namely, that the believer also has his presuppositions, is, in this connection, without force. The difference is that the believer's presuppositions are those which the Bible itself yields. The critics are not, but the negation of the Bible's postulates. The believer accordingly interprets the Bible along the Bible's own lines. The opposite view can only be maintained by continual drafts on the historic imagination and by bold and arbitrary treatment of the text and history. End footnote. Part 3. The truth of what is now said becomes more evident when, from its underlying principle, we look to the working out of this modern critical theory. The Bible is a book full of the supernatural from beginning to end. It is the history of the development of a supernatural purpose issuing in the Incarnation and in a supernatural economy of redemption. It is a story from the call of Abraham downwards of the entrance of God into history in supernatural word and deed. It is clear that the critical view, having as its postulate the denial of all this, has no alternative but to begin by sweeping the whole of it away. This, accordingly, is what it actually does. The process has two stages, in each of which the characteristic vice of the method is laid bare. The method, first, compels rejection, almost in toto, 
of the history we have. Next, it invokes imagination to fill up the blank by devising a new history fashioned on its own principle of religious evolution. As to the completeness of the sweep made of the existing history, there can be no question. Mr. Addis has just published a volume on Hebrew religion in which the patriarchal age is not so much as mentioned. Footnote. The criticisms on Mr. Addis here and in later papers are allowed to remain, but I desire now to say that I have no doubt of this writer's full acceptance of the great doctrines of our common Christian faith. I cannot change my view on the consistency. End footnote. To use a phrase of dooms applied to the Mosaic period, it is simply wiped out. Footnote. Doom boasts in his work on the prophets, page 19, that by the transference of a single source, the priestly law, into the post-exilian time, at one stroke the Mosaic period is wiped out. End footnote. The same is true of the age of Moses. Even where the lawgiver's personality and religious leadership of Israel are admitted, the history as we have it disappears, but some go further. In an important work lately published by Professor Edward Meyer of Berlin on Israel and its neighbors, the thesis is laid down and defended that Moses is no historical personality page 569. This will comfort Dr. Chain, who cannot believe that Moses was even, like Sargon, a historical personage with mythic accretions. The book of Joshua is a romance. I gave in my volume on the Old Testament a typical example of this historical method from Buddha which I may here reproduce. He is explaining how the Kenite god of Moses became transformed into the Yahweh of a later period by the absorption of other gods into himself. Yahweh had not expelled or annihilated them, the Canaanitish gods, but had made them subject he had divested them of their personality by absorbing them into his own person. To be sure, neither the law nor the historical narratives nor the prophets say a word of all this, yet it can be proved, etc. Footnote. Religion of Israel, page 41. Italics are mine. The above is a suggestive commentary on such panegyrics on the newer criticism as those in Professor Kant's Origin and Permanent Value of the Old Testament. Not a grain of truth which the Bible contains has been destroyed or permanently obscured. Instead, the debris of time-honored traditions and dogmas have been cleared away and the true scriptures at last stand forth again in their pristine splendor, etc. Page 16. 
and footnote. Another branch of the same procedure is the removal by critical expurgation of any passages or references in the history or prophets which do not suit the critical scheme. The high priest, for instance, Wellhausen tells us, is a creation of the exile. He is unknown even to Ezekiel. Yet the high priest is mentioned at least four times in the preceding history. Second Kings 12, verse 10, 22, verses 4 through 8, 23, verse 4 and the texts are sustained by the parallel passages in Chronicles and by the Septuagint. What is to be done with them? They are simply struck out as interpolations. The passage above quoted from Buddha serves equally as an illustration of the counter-process of filling up from imagination the blanks created by this annihilation of the existing history. Examples would be endless. The whole critical theory of the evolution of Israel's religion, from a primitive animism to the creation of the priestly code in the exile, is, in my judgment, a case of it, and it was seen in a previous paper that Hugo Winkler, the Orientalist, is of the same opinion. Only an instance or two need be given. It was mentioned before that the Levites in the priestly code are supposed to have taken their origin in the degradation of the unfaithful priests of Ezekiel 44. There is no evidence that such a degradation was ever carried out, much less that the Levites, already found at the return from exile, Ezra 2, verse 40, 3, verse 8, etc., were the creation of any such ban. Yet we are treated with imaginary pictures of the vehement struggles adumbrated in the story of Korah of these degraded priests in the exile to regain their lost privileges. Nothing could be more baseless. Again, the Decalogue is denied to Moses, but the fiction of a second Decalogue, which is supposed to be more primitive, is extracted from Exodus 34, verses 14 through 26. Yet Mr. Addis who serves up this earliest Decalogue without demur in his Hebrew Religion, pages 117 through 119, had himself told us in his larger work on the Hexateuch, volume 1, page 157, in this agreeing with very many critics, that the disentangling of the alleged ten words is mere guesswork. In the same writer, a proof that the doorposts in Israel were under the protection of Penates, or spirits of the household, is found in the fact that the master took his bondsman to the doorpost and pierced his ear with an awl, by that act bringing him to Elohim. Page 37. 
Compare Exodus 21, verse 6. What can be clearer than that Elohim here means simply judges? English version shall bring him unto the judges. As unquestionably it does in 1 Samuel 2, verse 25. More examples will be found when we come to deal with worship. End of section 5